Hi, everyone. Welcome to Reverb. I'm Calvin Pollock. And I'm Alex Elberg. Today is part one of a two-part series on the rhetoric of place, specifically with regards to urban development debates in Pittsburgh. We have a two-part interview here on the show. Our first part, we'll be talking to Derek Handley. He's a uh, PhD graduate in the rhetoric program from CMU. He'll be talking to us about his dissertation work on uh, urban renewal efforts in the mid-20th century, specifically surrounding Pittsburgh's Hill District and how uh, places were used as argumentative resources for resistance uh, to that urban renewal strategy. And in our second interview, we talked to Liana Manise, She's a social practice artist and an entrepreneur with the Good People's Group, and we talked to her about gentrification in East Liberty and why, in her view, ownership should be kind of the central concept that we use to talk about resisting uh, gentrification. So I think it's going to be a great episode. Let's take it away. Sounds good. Hi, everyone. This is Calvin just checking in here to give a quick disclaimer. We had some minor recording issues on the interview with Derek, so there's some slightly choppy editing you might notice, but that's just to correct for the issue we were having. We're expecting recording to go increasingly smoothly uh, as we work on our processes here. Thank you for listening. Uh, so welcome, everybody. Uh, today we're speaking with Derek Handley, uh, who's a Ph.D. candidate in rhetoric at Carnegie Mellon University, former managing editor of The Silver Tongue and uh, founding editor emeritus of Reverb, and currently a pre-doctoral fellow at the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference at Emory University, and will be teaching at uh, Lehigh University in the fall. Derek, welcome. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks, Alex. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Glad to be here. Yeah. So... I thought we could start out just by, yeah, so we, you've shared with us a little bit of the research that you've done, particularly on uh, what's kind of broadly called in the field the rhetoric of place, and particularly how that manifests itself here in Pittsburgh around urban renewal efforts that have happened uh, not just here in the city, but of course kind of across the country, kind of starting in the latter half of the 20th century. So I was wondering if you could maybe just give us a little bit of background or an overview of the history of urban renewal efforts in the U.S., uh, especially in the latter half of the 20th century. So urban renewal was a public uh, policy, really took root with the Housing Act of 1954. It was a revision of the 1949 um, Housing Act. And what that act did was to give local cities federal dollars for urban projects to build arenas, to build highways, a lot of highway systems that we see now in, 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 in our cities um, were a result of urban renewal, um, giving the city a power to use eminent domain to bulldoze mm -hmm. buildings, houses, um, things of that sort. But what was problematic and in a lot of ways was African-American neighborhoods were disproportionately targeted by urban renewal. And the work, some of the work I'm doing is looking at the ways in which African-American residents in Pittsburgh, as, as well as my larger project in Milwaukee, uh, resisted um, some of those urban renewal practices. Sometimes they were successful, sometimes they were not, uh, but at the very least they might have modified some of the policies. So that's the ways in which I'm thinking about urban renewal. And it lasted from about 1954 to the early early 70s um, mm -hmm. when it was revised so that's a little brief history yeah awesome. thank you yeah so Derek you know we're here in Pittsburgh and in, in the neighborhood of Oakland the Hill District is right next door right right and, um, 
Can you talk a little bit about what was unique about how urban renewal kind of played out in Pittsburgh, in the city of Pittsburgh, maybe for listeners who don't know as much about Pittsburgh's kind of development history? Absolutely. So uh, just to give a little more history about um, the Hill District, if you're familiar with August Wilson's plays, Mm -hmm. or you've seen a Denzel Washington movie, Fences, it's set in the Hill District. The district is an historic neighborhood. More recently, there was a book out called Smokehouse, and I forget the name of the author, who talks about the Renaissance, another place where the rena- a Renaissance was taking place within African-American context here in Pittsburgh. I talk about the vibrant neighborhood in which the Hill District was. You had Harlem in New York, and then you had South Side of Chicago, and then Pittsburgh was kind of in between. So Pittsburgh was a very prominent place for African-Americans. The Pittsburgh Courier mm-hmm. had a nationwide readership that went out to African-Americans across the country. Yeah. So what happened or, or where, if you, if you look at a map and you look at the Hill District, what you'll notice is sort of on one side is downtown Pittsburgh right. and the other side of it is the University of Pittsburgh. And so you had the Hill District in between. You look at some early newspaper articles from the mainstream press in Pittsburgh in 1940s is this grand vision of what they imagine their city to be. And mm-hmm. one of the projects, in addition to Arena, was it going to be a cultural arts center. I, I think the idea was to be able to connect downtown with the University of Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, you have all these African-Americans in a way. And let, me, let me back up one second. So the Hill District, Probably by the 50s and in the early 60s, it was still, I mean, it was, predomin- it was predominantly African-American, but it was still fairly integrated. You had a small Jewish population, Syrian population, as well as an Italian population. So the first part that was affected by urban renewal was a place called the Lower Hill. Mm-hmm. And Lower Hill, where the most ind- integration was probably existed, once the lower hill was demolished to build then Civic Arena, mm-hmm. what you have was sort of a, a resegregation of the city. Italian people could move to the south side. The Jewish population could move to Squirrel Hill. When African-American population couldn't move to wherever they wanted to move. Right. So some moved into the middle and upper hill. Some moved over to the north side or into, into Homewood and started to create some of the conditions that was going on the hill where there was overcrowding. And so what I talk about in my work is the project when it was first presented to the African-American community, they thought they were going to be a part of it. They thought whatever new housing was going to build, they'll, they'll be there. And then that didn't happen. And to add insult to injury, the workers who were working to build the Civic Arena didn't include African-Americans. And so now as this neighborhood, this part that was part of us, part of our community, you know, we lost businesses, we lost homes, lost churches. Now we're being shut out completely. It was, as I talk about in my work, it was a predominant, once it was predominantly black space, now it's become a predominantly white space. And then the residents quickly realized that it wasn't going to stop there. Maybe we should say for people who aren't residents of the city or maybe haven't visited, um, the Civic Arena was the Penguins hockey stadium mm-hmm. for the current console. Right, center. right. So, um, so let me let me let yeah, me stop. When it was first built, it was mm-hmm. actually they call it the Civic Arena. 
It was originally built to house some sort of music group, the Civic Light Opera. Right. And it was an architectural wonder. I mean, yeah. it was made out of some of the Pittsburgh steel. Yeah. It opened up, and you see some of these old pictures. It was for this musical group, and then later it became more prominent for, for sporting events and, and, right. and, and hockey and things of that of that sort. But it displaced 9,000 people. So it was, and what it also did it was, was to cut off the Hill District from 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 downtown, which yes. caused further isolation. It's good to get some context for what urban renewal sort of came to mean here in this space, in the city of Pittsburgh. Just, yeah, because it, it, it's kind of become this sort of buzzword, right? That, you know, urban renewal almost became kind of like a euphemism for the displacement of uh, particularly people of color in America or other kinds of disenfranchisement as well. James Baldwin in, the, in an interview and many other people have since said it too, the urban renewal came to mean Negro renewal. Right, which right. Which was the term at the time being used. And yeah. that's exactly, exactly what it was. And not enough, not a sufficient enough housing being built to house those who were displaced. Right, yeah. And so, but this didn't come without contest, right? Especially from some residents of uh, the upper and the middle hill, the other the other sort of parts of the hill district. So can you talk a little bit about, there's one specific location in the city that you talk about as being kind of a powerful site of resistance to urban renewal practices uh, around this time. Can you talk a little bit about that place? Sure. So the 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 heart of my article deals around Freedom Corner yeah. right. in Pittsburgh. Freedom Corner was the, is a corner of Crawford Street and Center Avenue in Pittsburgh. What it was is it was at the point of the Hill District that was closest to the building of the Civic Arena. So from this location, you right. can see the devastation that was caused by urban renewal. And what happened is the residents sort of claimed that place, claimed this corner as a site of resistance. And this is the heart of, um, of what I'm talking about in terms of rhetorics of place. There was an article by Andres and Cindy Cook called Place in Protest, right. uh, where I was thinking about in the way in which this place for the residents wasn't that just for protest, but it was also to unify. And, and this is another way I was thinking, drawing from African-American rhetorical traditions. Malana Karenge talked about African-American rhetoric as a rhetoric of community and resistance. So it's not just resistance that I'm thinking about, but it's also community. Mm-hmm. And so for the residents of the Hill District, Freedom Corner was also a symbol of community and unity. They would hold rallies there. They would will be getting beginning point of a march into downtown Pittsburgh. It originated in terms of um, resistant urban renewal, but it came to mean a place for the largest civil rights movement right. in Pittsburgh. But the important key in terms of urban renewal is four different organizations paid to have a billboard placed on this corner. And maybe we can we can show the photo um, as well. Essentially, the sign was saying, "You will not build past this point. You will right. not redevelop beyond this point." It was like mm-hmm. a line in the sand. It was a line in the sand. Okay. It was a demarcation, and so anybody who was going to an event at the Civic Arena would see that billboard. It was a, it was a message to the city that um, we're we're reclaiming our community, and we want to be part of the changes. There are parts that do need redevelop. There are mm-hmm. some 
landlords who letting their property go. Um, but you will include us in the conversation. And that billboard through some of my interviews was a unifying focus for the community to, to, to get behind. And I call it this, this line of demarcation. It's like us versus them. It, it showed unity from the community. Right, and you actually talk about this as almost the kind of language that sovereign nations use towards one another, one another in, in a situation of war or a situation of international conflict. And I thought that was really fascinating because I think uh, a lot of people in our field are skeptical of rhetorics of us and them as you know being inherently uh, negative or inherently corrosive. But I think in this case, it, it served a really important resistant function. Well, you know, as you were talking, I was just thinking about this, and I mean, what happens in war, right? What happened to mm -hmm. cities in war? There's, there's destruction, right? And for folks who are facing urban renewal, it's loss of your home, it's destruction. There is a, a wonderful book by, um, I believe, Mindy Fully Love, who, Root Shock, talk about the trauma of urban renewal and she, where she interviewed residents who were affected and this this idea of loss of home and what does that mean over a period of time you lived in i mean the hill the hill district in pittsburgh for a lot of african americans including my parents my father was from alabama my mother was from north carolina part of the southern migration when you first came to pittsburgh the hill district was where you came to first. And a lot of people stay there. Again, go back and, and read the Century Cycle, um, August Wilson's Place. Folks live in 30, 40, 50 years in one location. And then one day someone shows up and, and knock on your door and say, you gotta get out. Mm -hmm. The bulldozer is right here. There was a, um, I remember reading a, a, a newspaper clipping of a, a preacher in St. Paul, Minnesota, who faced the same thing. Again, mm -hmm. this is across the U.S. He refused to leave. He refused to leave his house, and he had to be physically removed. So in some ways, it's 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 like the effects of war. Absolutely. So we, without, of course, you know, without violence, is we, got, we have to do what we can to protect to protect our homes, to protect our, our way of life, to protect where we live. Right. I don't know if I should frame it that way, now that I'm thinking about it. I don't know if I should frame it as, as war. So if we think about war symbolically, but the effects are still the same. You're being displaced. Yeah, and I mean, you know, we, we have fought wars in this country over race. It's not as yeah. though um, war can be separated from the situation of African Americans in this country, right? Right, exactly. And, and that's something else, when you think about urban renewal, the African-American history. In a lot of ways, it's a history of displacement. That was one of the quotes that we actually had written down from your piece was that arguments, arguments over place and space are often at the center of African-American rhetorical history. Can you talk, can you kind of unpack Absolutely. a little bit more about what that means? I mean, what was, let, me, let me ask you guys some questions. Sure, right? yeah, so please. When, when we talk about the civil rights movement, what do you mm -hmm. think about? Think about lunch counters and lunch counters. water fountains. Water yep. fountains. Yeah. Where yep. can you go and where you can't go? Right? Yeah. Even the yeah. booth. That's right. It's a space that you do not belong in. Right. Um, sitting at this lunch counter, um, this is a place where you don't belong. The whole freedom rides. Rosa Parks, when you're yeah. sitting on a bus, no, you got to get up and you got to move back to the back of the bus. And you really think about it, that's what segregation really is. Places where you don't belong. 
coming back to that place in protest article I referenced early, they gave the example of Martin Luther King giving the speech at Lincoln Memorial, right? right? And how does that location enhance the speech or serves the speech? Would it have the same effect if it was at a different location? If you didn't have Abraham Lincoln as the backdrop, so that was another way in which place served. The more I started thinking about it and, and thinking about rhetorical history and African-American traditions, it, it became a different way of seeing it as is, 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 is space and place. But even if you take it on another level, Kurt Wilson's book on civil rights debate after the Civil War talks about place in terms of social status. Right, knowing your place. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Africa, don't get too uppity um, for for African Americans. Knowing knowing your place of that's use these spatial metaphors. Spatial metaphors to signify um, right status in the social right, hierarchy. Right, right. There's an old saying, an African American saying about um, the differences between the North and the South. In the South, get as close as you want, but don't get too big. In the North, get as big as you want, but don't get too close. In terms of relationships with blacks and whites, so one is a physical space and one is a as a as a as a, as a social place. I wonder if you could talk about a little bit about the Freedom Corner Memorial that was erected in right. 2002. So, so Freedom Corner became a central point, as I said, for the civil rights movement in in, in Pittsburgh, and so those who were involved in the struggle wanted to memorialize those who were part of it, those who had uh, since passed away. So they created this memorial, and um, I encourage everybody to take a look at it. What's unique about this memorial, and which I haven't seen anywhere else for um, African American memorials, it was designed to be used as yeah. a place for it's an exact location where that billboard was, so when the speakers stand up on a platform behind the audience, they will see downtown. And it continues to be used as a, as a place for the community to gather. There are some very powerful images after the Trayvon Martin shooting where, where folks were just sitting in the middle of the street between the Freedom Corner Memorial and the church that's on the other side on the corner um, for protests, for police brutality. I'm thinking about Johnny Gamage case. Even today, it's used by larger communities now, not just the African-American communities. The 20 protest that was held in Pittsburgh. That's right. The Occupy movement. So it's evolved from just a street corner to, to a larger purpose for to serve economic and social justice. And so when you're saying, if I was to say to you all, hey, we're going to meet at the Freedom Corner, we're going to meet at Freedom Corner tomorrow, it's logical that your next question is going to be, oh, what are we protesting? You know, what's the issue? Yeah. So now it has that cachet, it has that association. And the naming of the corner, Freedom Corner, Ordinary Street Corner, Freedom Corner, it adheres to, to you know, the freedom, the word freedom being used throughout the city, the uh, civil rights movement, Freedom Summer, Freedom Rides, March for Jobs and Freedom. And it captures all of that long history of resistance. So, like I said, whenever you have a meeting or when you have some sort of event there, um, you're drawing from that history and it adds to whatever issue that, that you're talking about.
I, I'm so glad that you were able to kind of contextualize all the different ways that a place can sort of be imbued with this kind of power yeah. to be able to serve as such a powerful kind of a starting off point for for resistance movements. I'm wondering if that's is that so is that what you mean you also write in the article that places can act rhetorically to sort of support a claim, right? Or places can act rhetorically places can have an argumentative function either as arguments themselves or maybe as resources for other people's arguments. Uh, can you say a little bit more about about what that means? Yes. <laughs> yes. So that's 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 exactly. So it can support a claim. The let's take the Occupy movement from like uh, I remember about school loans. Yeah, so e economic justice, kind of across the justice, board. Yeah. Right. So having a rally there, starting your protests there. Folks were coming in from outside of Pittsburgh, but when you're when you're there at Freedom Corner you're drawing from those traditions or from what that's about. And if right. you look at the, if you ever go visit Freedom Corner, in the middle, there is this, um, a black stone that was brought over um, from West Africa. And then there's the names of the, of, of the folks who participated. And, and, and symbolically, when people are there, if you think about it, it's almost like they're literally standing on the shoulders Right. I shouldn't say literally. We, we're supposed to not say that unless because they're not literally standing <laughs> on the shoulders. But so they're symbolically yeah. standing on the shoulders of those folks for, for this particular issue. And, um, and so now downtown Pittsburgh becomes to represent something larger, federal government or banking industries and, and, and things like that. So there's a symbolicness attached to that place for whatever issue that, that, you're, that you're reflecting on. But it also serves as a reminder, um, and, and we really have been talking about this, that how the Hill District's residents were successful in stopping further encroachment right. into the Hill. So it was a success. So now you add that to your particular claim. I also think the geographical placement of it yes. is, is a resource for claims and arguments. So the, the fact that people protesting standing in that spot are actually physically oriented towards mm -hmm. decision makers downtown yep. Pittsburgh right. and mm -hmm. City Hall. Right. Um, that's a really powerful thing right. that I think mm -hmm. use the claims with a kind of yeah. like material and political stake. Yep. Yep. Right. And, it, and it is placed on actually higher ground too, right? So you actually have like a view kind of over and a that. Platform. Yeah, and a platform. Yeah, exactly. There's two photos I want to, I want to, reference one photo where the residents of the hill are signing this agreement the city of pittsburgh the mayor the county commissioner and they held it right there at the freedom corner it's kind of symbolic but even more powerful image and when you talk about the power structure yeah, um, yeah. after the trayvon martin it wasn't the shooting it was at the the, the end of the trial yes yep. and folks are just so upset and there was this image of, like I said, people sitting in the street, and there's there's a powerful photo of like Pittsburgh City bus having like to drive around. Wow. And but the one photo that stands out to me is um, young people sitting in the middle of the street, and African American woman who was a high-ranking Pittsburgh City police officer was just sitting down next to them and talking to them, and it's just 
you know, you have the backdrop of the Freedom Corner there, mm-hmm. and it's like, let's have a dialogue in which we can resolve this situation. We're not going to use brute force. We're not going to use the symbolic power of bulldozers. Urban renewal was what urban. This is what the residents wanted. Let's right. have a dialogue. You want us out of the street, right? So ordinary city business. Let's talk about how we can accomplish it. And so, to me, that image was 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 really about what 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 urban renewal resistance was about. Mm-hmm. The folks wanted to be able to have a dialogue with the city government, which, again, what I talked about in my article, um, they didn't have a large, they didn't have civic representation, mm-hmm. but include us in the conversation. So those those images, later images, and century is, is symbolic is, is folks now have the power in some ways to have to to bring about conversation that's a really kind of spectacular note and it kind of ties back a little bit to what we had talked about in previous conversations Doug Cloud in our first episode mentioned when we were kind of coming to our definition of rhetoric referencing uh, uh, Heim Perlman and Lucy Ulbricht's Titeka's notion that you know rhetoric is is one of the only viable alternatives to force right Mm -hmm. and so this is kind of a powerful example of being able to bring about change uh, that works through and i would say that it's what's powerful about thinking about rhetoric in that way in the context of the freedom corner is that the activists resisting on the freedom corner were opposing force with rhetoric in some sense you know literally and metaphorically taking the higher Mm -hmm. ground and i think that's really powerful because it's not to say there was no force in this situation we don't want to act like there was no power structure and no actual bulldozers and armed police and and stuff like that it's not as though force doesn't exist in the situation but Mm -hmm. it's the ways in which people resist force through rhetoric, I think is really powerful. And I also want to be clear, we gotta be careful. I think it's also important to look at those rhetorical events where even when change doesn't come, right, they're not successful. Pittsburgh, the Pittsburgh case, it was more success. Think about as to why that is. I think, I think uh, economic power might be part of it, the population. When you look at a place like um, Milwaukee, where it was a smaller African-American population and they were less successful. It's still important to think about or to study those events because I think Ta-Nehisi Coates talks a little bit about this in one of his books. It's still about the struggle, you know. You have to recognize the struggle. And so that's that's something that's important to me in, in, in my work and in, in looking from, you know, bottoms-up approach is to what did the struggle look like? How do they resist? Regardless of the outcome, regardless of whether they were successful or not, it's still important to 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 look at and think about the struggle, and 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 that was that was one focus. Well, we want to say thank you so much, Derek. This has been such an enlightening conversation. Thank Thanks, you so Derek. much for being with us here on Reverb. Thanks. This has been great. This has been awesome. I'm on a podcast. Yeah, yeah. On the way, so, on the air. Uh, yep. Um, you guys are doing doing great work. Um, um, I, I really appreciate it, and 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 keep it up. Thank keep you. Up. Thank sure you. We'll have your back soon. Yeah, I hope so.
Okay. All right. I hope it's under good circumstances. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Take Thanks, care. everybody. All right. Take care. Yep. sitting down with Liana Manise, a social practice artist and entrepreneur with the Good People's Group. Liana, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Great. So uh, so I think we wanted to talk about, we, we just came off of an interview where we were talking about the billboard that used to be at the Freedom Corner uh, in Pittsburgh in the Hill District that was used as a site of resistance to urban renewal practices uh, in the mid, uh, mid to late 20th century. So we're here to talk to you about another billboard, another one that went up in the city. I think before we get into that, maybe we could dive into a little bit about the, the place, since this is a podcast about you know places and how they function as resources for arguments when people make them, especially resistance arguments. Could you tell us a little bit about the Pittsburgh neighborhood of East Liberty, just a little bit of the background? background on how that's changed uh, as you've been living here in the city? Oh, man, has it changed. <laughs> so, well, East Liberty is really interesting because it is historically Pittsburgh's downtown. The Highland Building, which was, I guess, one of the first gentrified buildings in that neighborhood, used to be the tallest building in the city. Everything happened in East Liberty. It's where you did everything. So historically, it was humongous. I can't remember the exact number of theaters, but there were theaters. It was it was quite large. It has. I think it's important to make clear that it has been in sort of uh, gentrification is a process. So it things go through many phases of gentrification. So it's not kind of like this thing that just happens. Bam! It's just that we're seeing the changes more drastically uh, now. But it has been in that process for quite a long time. But I remember East Liberty as a you know predominantly uh, black space, even though I'm sure historically that was not necessarily the case. You know, it was an area that was super loud and vibrant, and you would buy. I remember my dad. We used to buy mixtapes out of people's trunks. A pretty famous Pittsburgh artist named Akil Asun used to sell stuff out of his truck, and uh, my dad was a music guy and. Um, used to uh, sell records he was to a lot of the DJs which is how I like got into the cool stuff early and that's what I remember about East Liberty it was like you just it was just like culture and you know not just hip-hop but really just like black culture really thrived you know musically any any form of art really and it and that's really what it stood for to me so for our listeners who don't live in Pittsburgh or who don't have as much context, what, what does Pittsburgh look like now? What, what started back then that has brought us to, to this point? Uh, that East Liberty or Pittsburgh? East, oh, East Liberty. Uh, East Liberty is turning into a strip mall. That's pretty much it. <laughs> it's not, it's just a strip mall. It's just like uh, the waterfront or any other. I mean, every community in America can recognize these kinds of spaces that just kind of are a mall. I mean, I know that when urban renewal in the mid 20th century in like the 60s happened in East Liberty as well, that was the original design for East Liberty was to create an outdoor mall. It was designed to like so that traffic could flow around and people could go to the, the stores but not actually have to stop in the neighborhood. Mm. And it seems like they've kind of realized that in a new generation with a slightly different configuration now. But really what is happening is gentrification or the so-called renewal, right? right, colonization of these spaces is, you know, and again, if you're, if you're a listener who is not in Pittsburgh or familiar, you could probably picture this happening in your own space. But just like in a grocery store, there's end caps, right? And that's like, it's like, hey, here's these end caps, right? 
the desirable neighborhoods, and those are words that were actually used throughout history when we talk about housing, but they're kind of like these end caps, right? They're like the target. They're like, this is what we want. And if you look at Pittsburgh, these communities that are being gentrified now connect. There's a, uh, an actual process happening. So you see these, these spaces that were, are now sort of, you know, I don't even know. I guess we could call them gentrified. We could call them, okay, all the white people live there, all the whatever, you know. Those spaces, regardless of how long they have been able to maintain that, there's these sort of spaces in between them. And so they're really just trying to connect them. So it's a very by design process. These are also communities that were part of redlining practices historically. Um, so this is, this is all by design. And I think that's the most important thing to remember. And so it's like white flight. Everybody was moving out and then they created these spaces inside and now they're trying to flip it again. You know, this happens over and over and over again, basically throughout history all over this country. So it's, it's important to note that it's, on purpose. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, and and also the fact that, that, you know, kind of moving more in the direction of talking about resistance to it, too. Like, it hasn't been without contest. Just as, you know, back in the mid-century, mm. there was a lot of organized movements to resist urban renewal practices, especially around the hill after the lower hill was raised from upper and middle hill residents. So there's a billboard, or there was a billboard, in East Liberty. So this is from uh, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette back on April 5th, 2018. The headline here is Landlord, quote, There are black people in the future, Billboard, violated lease agreements. So uh, it reads, A billboard reading, quote, There are black people in the future was removed from a building in East Liberty because it violated a lease agreement prohibiting, quote, distasteful, offensive, erotic, political content, said the building's landlord, noting that the tenant did not secure approval for the sign prior to posting it as required by the lease. Quote, in response to the installation, we were contacted by a number of people in the local community who said that they found the message offensive and divisive, said a statement from Eve Picker of We Do Property Management released Thursday evening. Ms. Picker, whose company manages the property at Highland and Baum, did not respond to additional requests for comment. The billboard was part of, quote, the last billboard art project, a creation of Carnegie Mellon associate professor John Rubin, who specializes in contextual art. For the last eight years... Uh, it has broadcast various messages and currently rotates monthly, spotlighting a different artist each month. There Are Black People in the Future, which was posted March 3rd and removed last week, was the work of local artist Alicia Wormsley, uh, building on her ongoing project of the same name. So, so, we've got, so we've got a billboard that went up on, this, on the corner of Highland Baum, kind of this very major street corner in East Liberty. Facing traffic moving through East Liberty into Shadyside. Yeah, out of East Liberty. Yeah. Out right. of East Liberty, right. yeah. So I thought we could first start by picking apart that phrase, you know, and talking about the actual language of it. What do you make of the of that phrase, there are black people in the future? Well, so Alicia uh, Wormsley, who's the artist, has talked at great length about, you know, what that phrase means to her. And, and also that's been around Pittsburgh for quite a while. She's used this as part of her work for a long time, <laughs> so it shouldn't be uh, super new. But I think that that's what's so upsetting about the whole situation is that it is so simple and so basic and so true. The word divisive makes me so angry <laughs> because yeah. it's like it's like nothing is more divisive than a white person calling black people divisive by choosing to even give space for somebody to even feel offended at something that is just a true statement. So that in and of itself is this whole other layer of problems. And when we when we talk about language in and of itself, like this is this is the perfect example of 
of how people can use that to just kind of completely uh, validate themselves. And then it's, it's very general, that statement, too, about people complained. Like, who complained? It's like I half want to cry and I half want to laugh. <laughs> but I'm not <laughs> Because it's so... I can't believe this is even a thing, and I want to be sure not to give these kinds of people too much voice, right, right. because they mm-hmm. don't deserve it. Mm-hmm. However, on the flip side of it, it's scary because it's, because it's kind of like somebody saying, like, we're offended that you exist now and in the future, personally, right. mm-hmm. because I'm a black person. <laughs> so I realize I'm on the radio and nobody might know. And acknowledging it, right, acknowledging it and allowing these people to go unchecked, which is, is what's happening, right? They're still unchecked. There's still no one's said that this what you're doing is not okay, Eve. What you're doing is not okay, ELDI. What you're doing is not okay, you know, Walnut Capital, all of these other places who are investing in this community, displacing all of these families that have been there forever. No one is saying it's okay. There was actually this white man, older man, that his perception of that was like that this must be what's happening in people's minds is that these are the people who are going to come and move into this house next to me mm. or that that and he lives in this man lived in the suburbs but that was something he was thinking well if this popped up over in the suburbs like this is how i could imagine people are thinking about it it means you're here you know this this like it's a, an erasure right i mean it's been so easy to erase this just like we have figured out ways you know via all kinds of colonization, right? The, you know, meritocracy myths that are also supported by model minority myth. All of these, like, belief systems that have really upheld people in power and hurt everybody, right, involved. Everybody, everybody is hurt in some, on some soul level by all of this. So that's what, it's so deep, right? You all, like, picked, like, the deepest topic ever because well, it's so connected, right? It's like, how could this billboard be so much? So it puts us in this position, right, where it's like, well, what do we do now? you know, trying to move away from giving these people too much voice. But I think it really becomes about completely circumventing the entire thing. Just let's, you know, you have to find a way to completely go around it because participating in these systems is dangerous. Yeah. Emotionally, physically, and otherwise, you know, and financially. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. So you had an interview with with a local news channel where we were talking about this controversy surrounding the billboard where you said, of the issues that are going on in East Liberty and sort of in the city at large, it's really about allowing people who have historically been left out the opportunities to own their spaces. They can't displace us if we own our own space. So can you talk a little bit more about what that's what that means and like if possible, like some possibilities for, you know, seeing a way seeing a way around? Yeah, I mean the key word is ownership, right? That's the, the that's always been the key word, right? Regardless of whether we're talking about spaces, human beings, other pieces of wealth. There is a reason why the most important thing historically has been to deny ownership even of our own bodies, right, to people. So this carries over today in this way where we are preventing people from still, I mean, redlining practices among other practices, right? None of this, and and banks, to be clear, are still getting sued for these kinds of practices. This is not like a past thing, right? Mm -hmm. We're still, ownership is the biggest barrier to equity, right? It's the only, I believe that it's the only, the, the primary thing, right? Ownership is all that really matters, you know? And if we're not figuring out ways to put money in the hands of Black entrepreneurs, brown entrepreneurs, indigenous entrepreneurs, right, women, then we're just not doing anything. This conversation around ownership is connected to language big time, right, which I think is why the billboard was so upsetting to people because it's so simple of a, of a thing to say, right, there are black people in the future. 
future, right? Like, duh, of course there are <laughs> black people in the future. There are now, just like when we talk about divisive, I mean, allowing things like this to even be an issue is creating that division, right? Because it's a, it's a true statement. And you think about it, there's two words in that that are threatening, right? Black and future are the two mm-hmm. words that are like, right, maybe yeah. are. Maybe are, but yeah. I guess well, like I future was, just says that, that was. Oh, yeah. sorry, I didn't mean to cut you. No, no, because was, you could say like there are not, and then there's yes. like a whole other thing, you know. We were actually talking about this earlier, where that's I, what we see that's so interesting in there is that there's two sort of temporal dimensions that are played with, right? So mm-hmm. you have there are, which is usually, I mean, that's a present tense of the verb. There are black people but then you have in the future which shifts the entire you know the time span to being you know somewhere off in the future so but it becomes this sort of existential statement right it's not even saying there will be black people in the future there are yeah it conveys a a kind of maximal certainty yeah it's Mm -hmm. like there are and i think that's threatening to people Mm -hmm. as well this this like foresight like i know there are black people in the future Mm -hmm. and that threatens people, but why? I mean, that's that's why I think it's such a great piece. Why do you think? I mean, I'm sitting here with two white dudes, so I'm gonna take the opportunity. <laughs> I please, guess. yeah, no, that's <laughs> fair. Sure. But yeah, just thinking yeah. about like why I kind of think I know why because of my background and what I get to do every day. But I'm curious what people who don't do this every day mm-hmm. think of like why is that threatening? I mean, I, I put it in a very like geographical economic lens that. I mean, there are specific interests in that neighborhood who are committed to the idea of there not being black people in the future in that particular spot, that Mm -hmm. particular, like, pin on the map. And so that's kind of how I read it, that, like, that just offended people, that you could walk two, three blocks, like, from that corner, Highland and Bomb, and that there will be black people in the future is, is contrary to the power interests in that spot but i mean that might be a kind of myopic reading i don't know yeah what's, what's I, your take well Alex? so so i th- i think about it more in terms of okay so what is what is going on mentally when you know like your average white person sees that phrase and right. i think i mean i think in large part it goes back to just racist tropes that have been with us forever which is the idea that you know, black occupied spaces are going to be uh, violent or they're going to be, you know, somehow there's a threat that's implied by the very existence of black people in a space. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's a retribution threat, which I think yes, is the important the, to mention. It's not a precisely. real threat because right. really yeah. we should be afraid of you. That's well, well <laughs> in yeah, the, that's the most the, like, wor- you know, basic sense of the word. Right. right. Based <laughs> I think on historical. Yeah. yeah. I think that's the yeah. essential. Records. That's the assen- fear of being fought back. Yes. Yeah. That's the essential. That's the essential trail of the actual thought process is that there's some small uh, recognition however small that that you know maybe we have this coming <laughs> and or you yeah. know maybe this is this is something that logically people would strike back if you if you know for hundreds and hundreds of years you know we've been enslaving and marginalizing an entire group of people like maybe we maybe we have it coming and that scares us i think on another level like uh, like based on american racial ideology like we have this idea of that white people are the most evolved or the most advanced relative to other races so the fact that black people could occupy the future scares us because it Mm -hmm. seems to be a reversal like black people are not supposed to be there Mm -hmm. white people are supposed to be there yeah we Um, we talked about this in in one of our earlier episodes with national security rhetoric we see so much or the language around national security so much is put into 
talking about securing the future, knowing the future, having a certain future. And I think that that, you know, messages like what was on the billboard was throwing that certainty into into question or into into doubt because people see the momentum of the uh, gentrification processes in East Liberty, and then all of a sudden, you know, that gets interrupted by something as, you know, by a message that just kind of cuts through that and is, you know, offering a counter. So I think it was a little bit reactionary to that as well. Mm -hmm. In order to just, everything is about like justifying, right? We have to justify our action, right? I killed a fly and I have to justify why I feel bad, right? Like naturally, I'm like, oh shit, I've done that, you know? But then I'm like, oh, they carry disease or something. (laughs) Like, (laughs) whatever. But it's like this, you know, you know, you're bringing up so many important points here, too, about, you know, this. I mean, there's a reason why, you know, eugenics existed and the tests that were done on black women with no, you know, with no anesthesia. Right. All of these all of these things. Right. You have to. The reason that they did that is because, like, they genuinely needed, not wanted, not true. Right. They needed to believe that we were inhuman to be able to support their cognitive dissonance around causing that kind of violence. Right. Cognitive dissonance is the mo- is so huge here, and this is connected directly to the sign and ownership, right? Because if you can disconnect yourself from the root, there's this disconnection between each other. The closer we are, is what is causing these very deep wounds that are allowing systemic and institutionalized racism, sexism, all of these things to continue. It's really not just about like being an ally and like saying the right thing and reading the right books and like adopting children or something. It's about really admitting like what is yours right that i mean when you say meritocracy pick yourself up by your bootstrap well that's easier for you to say so when you have to say okay well why do i have what i have nobody will people don't want to answer that question they really don't you know language is really just like um and you know i'm interested to hear what you think about it but language to me is like is another justification Right. It's another way, I think, to justify actions. You know, I don't remember if it's Toni Morrison or Bell Hooks, but um, that language is violent, inherently violent. Mm. I'm curious what you two think about that. I think that it's absolutely violent because I feel like I will never, you know, have the language. You know, what would it look like if I actually had like my own language that actually could give me a way to actually express who I am, right? Um, that's not just like somebody naming me. Because it feels like everything is someone naming you instead of like the other way around. I don't even know what that would be. That's like mind-blowing to me. Yeah. No, I mean, that, that is one of the really, I mean, that's why I think Calvin and I both got into studying language in the first place is because we recognize that there's a lot of power that comes along with the ability to, you know, as Paulo Freire would say, name the oh, world. Oh, I do love right? him. Oh, yeah. No, we My love we love favorite Brazilian. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's one of the most powerful things about language, right, is it, is it gives you the power to put something into a category or to give a name to something, to be able to give form to what might otherwise be formless, right? I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I to the question about whether or not language is violence. I mean, I would have to read Hooks and or or or, or Tony Morrison to see what what context that was used in. I mean, I think as a gut reaction, I usually shy away from it because I tend to be of the camp that believes that language can be used for both oppressive and liberatory purposes. Right. I mean, you know, Freire thought that too, and that giving people sort of the the language to be able to um, lift themselves out of poverty or to be able to start questioning, at least, you know, to change the narrative, as we said earlier. So it's more an issue of access, less language. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. More, more access as well as, as well as, you know, being able to, being able to 
see the right things with your language, right? Like, because that's to me what changing the narrative also is about is focusing on the issues that are really going to make a difference, like ownership right. rather than donating a part of my salary to a nonprofit, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I think of the Kenneth Burke quote, a way of seeing is a way of not seeing. And that yeah. was that was in reference to rhetoric and language. And his point was that as soon as you say something, as soon as you use a linguistic form to name something or describe something, you're also not using you know, yes. an infinite number of other ways of describing that. Yeah. And there's a power in that, but there's also a violence. What are you missing? But also what, what are you affording yourself the, the ability to see? Mm. And so when you say the issue is ownership, there are things you're omitting, but you're also saying something very powerful and redirecting the conversation to something that might be more useful. Mm -hmm. That's true. I like that way of thinking of it. Yeah. And I think you're right. It does, it does depend on who and what we're talking about, right? Yeah. I think I see it that way because it seems so far from me. Mm. Language feels so f like something I have to well, appropriate or f figure out or right. find, right? I mean, everything yeah. I do is about finding it. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I still haven't found it. Well, and is it thing a bit? Is it a thing? <laughs> <laughs> right. Because, well, I mean, you know, there there are a lot of other rhetorical theorists who talk about how all of our language is borrowed, right? Like right. that was essentially like Mikhail Bakhtin's main premise of his work on intertextuality and dialogic sorry i'm throwing out just a ton of big words that probably don't mean no it's fine like, people should be googling them. yes yeah when you intertextuality, hear them write it down dialogicality <laughs> but the essential premise is that is that we always appropriate our language you know bakhtin writes the when when a person speaks they don't speak as the biblical adam uttering the word for the first time we're always getting it from somewhere and so that goes to your point earlier about that language is colonized, the la or as Bakhtin would say, our language is always populated with other people's meanings. And so one of the things that we Oof. have to... Yeah, that's a big one, right? I love... I, he's, he was very poetic in writing all of this. But it, points, it points to our yeah. responsibility when we use that's language. Right. That we want to be appropriating voices that we actually agree with and that, you know, and to be aware of the history yeah. of, of the kinds of Yeah. Well, it's like we who's... Wh what are we elevating? Yes. Right. And I think that's why I like... I think that's why I've settled on this ownership, right? It feels good when I say like we have an ownership problem because it doesn't to me it doesn't feel like I'm s there's any blame mm -hmm. in that for the people who don't deserve blame mm -hmm. for me I'm sure that other people could probably do anything you want with whatever but that's kind of like why I like it because it's like everything else just feels busy mm -hmm. you know and distracting and so like that is what's nice is being able to kind of like this is the thing stop talking about all of the other things that yeah. you know are actually just symptoms of the thing can we just deal with the thing? <laughs> I'm going to start Googling uh, dissertations that come out of rhetoric <laughs> departments, though, because I never thought about doing that in my work, and I might actually get a lot of answers. Oh, yeah. I never thought about it, ever. But that I'm going to start doing that. Well, we can give you some names. Yes. Yeah. yeah so we'll okay. Cool. Give you some yeah. resources. Cool. And of course, I mean, yeah, we, <laughs> it's hard to put a fine point on a conversation like this. But I think we, I think we should probably, we should probably leave it here. Calvin, did you have anything else you wanted to add? Or um, no, I think, I mean, I think I'm really glad that you redirected the, this conversation to being about ownership. I yes. think that's that is the threshold concept we want to underscore with mm -hmm. this conversation is like ownership. Talk about it more. Think about it more. Right. And maybe that'll be uh, a useful way of approaching these kinds of debates. Yeah, absolutely. If nothing else, it changes our way of talking about the issue, which is in itself, which is in itself a kind of discursive power. Right. Right. We want to thank you, Liana, so much for coming on here with us. Uh, is there anything that you'd like to plug uh, before we say goodbye? I just wanted to say thank you also. I'm really excited to learn more about, to listen to, you know, 
your past and future podcasts, but also just to to you know really reflect on language. I think it's so important. It's such an important thing and part of what I do and my own experience. So you guys are awesome for doing that. And uh, thank you. You know, really cool stuff to learn. Now I feel like all these people know that this is an option, right? This is like yeah. a thing you can learn in school. Yeah, like if somebody would have told me, I think I would have done this, right? <laughs> My company is called The Good People's Group, but we are opening a center on interracial relationships soon if we find all the money that we need. <laughs> but we have learned to go quite far with not a lot, so hopefully everything will go as planned. But when we think about language, I think in, in, in we're trying to rethink what the word interracial means. We believe that everybody is in, in an interracial relationship of some mm -hmm. sort. We're having it now, mm -hmm. right? And what does creating equity in our relationships look like, whether they're quick moments or our children or other people in our family I at work? So I like to think about sort of bringing together our mental health, our relationships, and solving huge problems like racism that way. It's also a little bit more of an enjoyable process um, yeah. to focus on inter on relationships mm -hmm. instead of just kind of all of the you know instead of being you know overtly political yeah so stay tuned for that and where can people go to find out more about that so we um we have a website thegoodpeoplesgroup.com peoples is plural and the website that will be connected and everything is being redone currently so you might want to give yourself a month or two to look will be the center on interracial relationships. But I'm super accessible. Everything is super Googleable. If you're curious and the information is not there, you can always contact me via Facebook, via email, Liana, L-I-A-N-A, at thegoodpeoplesgroup.com. And I'm sure they could contact you and you could find me too. All right. Well, thank you so much, Liana. It's been awesome having you on. Yeah, it was awesome talking to Thanks you guys. Thanks for coming. Thanks right. for having me. All right. Bye. Bye, everybody. <laughs> If you liked this episode, don't miss part two, which will be dropping next week, The Rhetoric of Place, part two, when we'll be exploring some of the more academic theoretical perspectives on gentrification with the help of our guest, Scott Reese, a master's candidate in literary and cultural studies at Carnegie Mellon, whose work focuses on just those theories and how they can be applied to current economic and political realities. Uh, we'll also talk to some residents of Bloomfield, which is undergoing many of these troubling development trends. So you are not going to want to miss that. Our show today was produced and edited by Alex Helberg and Calvin Pollock. Reverb's web designer is Anna Cook, and our publicity and social media team is Ryan Mitchell and Audrey Strong. You can subscribe to Reverb and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Android, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website at www.reverbcast.com. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at ReverbCast. That's R-E-V-E-R-B underscore C-A-S-T. Thanks for tuning in.